Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Julie Shah. Julie is a professor at MIT. Julie, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you are a professor of robotics in particular, and we're going to dig into your work in that field. But to get us started, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field. Wonderful. Yeah. I'm a professor of aeronautics and astronautics at MIT, and I also lead a robotics lab at MIT as a part of the computer science and artificial intelligence laboratory. And I have a special love of like time-critical, safety-critical applications, which is why I'm in aerospace. And so my story of how I ended up in robotics has to start with how I ended up in aerospace. And I was just like born loving airplanes and rocket ships. Uh-huh. <laughs> I always wanted to be an astronaut. I went to space camp. I was a super nerd. Oh, nice. <laughs> which I'm very proud of. And at space camp, they give you a book of all the astronauts and where they all went to school. And they always stressing you, you need to be really good at math and science. And I was like, check, I can be good at math and science. Yeah. Very large number of them either went to the military academies or MIT. Uh-huh. And I was like, MIT sounds like a good place. <laughs> <laughs> And so whenever anybody would ask what I wanted to do, I would say, I want to go to MIT and study aerospace engineering. And everybody would say, oh, that's so specific. Okay. <laughs> and then I came to MIT and in the aeroastro department. And then, you know, pretty soon after in the department, I'd be asked, okay, so you're aeroastro, but what are you going to specialize in? Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, no, I have to specialize further. <laughs> <laughs> As it turns out that aerospace, much like robotics, is it's a systems discipline. Yeah, I really loved control theory and control systems and really loved learning about, you know, aircraft autopilots and how those really had to be designed to the capabilities of pilots, of humans, and, you know, how, how they could affect control over a system. Having to design for the human machine system mm-hmm. was really exciting to me and needing to understand both sides of that equation. So I actually did my master's degree in human factors engineering okay. to kind of go deep on the human side. And it wasn't until my PhD, I switched gears and joined the computer science and artificial intelligence laboratory and did my PhD in automated planning and scheduling. You know, this was 2010, I finished up my PhD. So before the big era change to, you know, to machine learning. Sure. And, you know, throughout have just been really, really interested in how you design automation and technologies and, and you know, AI and machine learning to like fit like a puzzle piece against human capabilities so that you can sort of achieve some end objective. And that's why I you know, started a robotics lab, the interactive robotics group. And my lab you know, includes human factors engineers and includes aerospace engineers and computer scientists and others as well. So we bring kind of a cross-disciplinary perspective to developing the technology and showing its benefit. Nice, nice. In your lab, do you... So have that leaning towards flying robots as opposed to arms or walking robots or humanoids or other types of form factors? Yeah, it's interesting you ask that because when I had for faculty positions, it was straight out of PhD. Mm-hmm. I did all my degrees at MIT and then I had this amazing offer from MIT, from my home department, but they strongly recommended slash required that I go away for a year <laughs> before starting on the faculty. <laughs> and they, my PhD was funded under an NSF 
fellowship. So it was uh-huh. maybe not not super closely tied to you know real applications of real systems. And the department head at the time suggested that I go out to Boeing. And he said, you know, they have interesting applications in robotics for manufacturing. I said, oh, that sounds great. Sounds like a great way to spend a year out in Seattle. So yeah. I just caught the bug of, you know, manufacturing. I just loved watching, you know, 737 or 777 being built in front of me and then thinking about the challenges. Again, it's like an integration challenge. Like robots can do pieces of that work, but actually the vast majority of building a large commercial airplane is still done manually, like a beehive of manual work. And so there there are challenges in how you design the technology, the robotics, the intelligent robot to integrate into manual workflow. And so when I came back, I had a, I wanted to keep doing that. I kind of wanted to keep working in robotics for manufacturing and collaborative robots. And I, I asked a different department head, <laughs> the one that hired me at the time, said, is it going to be okay if I, you know, if I work in manufacturing in AeroAstro or do I need to be flying things? And he said, <laughs> pursue the problems that you think are important. Nice. And I really appreciated that. I work on aerospace and applications, but I also work in, uh, you know, automotive, you know, I work in decision support for fighter pilots, but also like nurses and doctors. Mm-hmm. But the key thread is, I think it's really exciting to develop technology that really has to be flawless to add value and has to fit with the human in a way that doesn't add friction, but really eases a very challenging job of a domain expert. And so... So you can kind of envision that as a Venn diagram of, you know, mission critical in one circle and requires human interaction in the other and your sweet spot is in the middle. Yeah, yeah. That's a good visualization nice. of whether or not I take on a project. Yes. <laughs> okay. And so let's dig a little bit deeper into that. What are some of the types of projects that you work on or maybe even more broadly, how do you craft a research agenda in that, that intersection? Yeah, I started on the faculty at MIT just a little over 10 years ago, or maybe 11 years ago now. And from the sort of like the vision behind our work then and and still now is to be intentional about developing intelligent machines or intelligent robots, or even kind of computing more broadly, that enhances human capability and well-being. And, you know, there are many ways to do that. But, you know, starting out in the lab and going back to my PhD, I, I was interested in how far can you get in developing a robot that can emulate the capabilities of an effective human team member? Mm-hmm. And that's not the only model of collaboration or teamwork for sure. It was always a hypothesis. It's not even a given that if you develop a system with some of the you know, capabilities or features of a, an effective human team member, that that'll even be useful. So we've always you know, conducted experiments to try to determine you know, whether or not that's useful. My lab focuses on developing novel AI models and algorithms where the AI is modeling people. And so there are you know, decades of studies in what makes for effective human teamwork, you know, in sports psychology and studying pilots in the cockpit or doctors and nurses in, in the operating room. And it's, very, it's a very practical field of study because you want to be able to train up new people to come into this profession and work effectively in a team. But I'll just brush that all aside and summarize many decades of very rigorous study (laughs) in human teamwork and human team coordination in terms of, you know, like there's three capabilities that we as humans bring to teams that make some of us exceptional team members. And that's the ability to know what your partner is thinking, to be able to anticipate what they'll do next, and then be able to use that information online as circumstances unfold to, to sort of change your plan. 
And so my lab has focused on doing those three things, developing models that can infer human cognitive state, predictive models of human behavior and workflow, and then also a set of techniques around dynamic plan execution to be able to take those predictions and use them online to have a robot kind of play the game with you. Mm -hmm. And so it's primarily in in development of novel AI models and, and methods, but everything we do needs to be tested and evaluated with a system actually working with a person to know whether you know emulating these capabilities is is even a value. Got it. Well, one of the things that you said in there that I don't want to be as hyperbolic as blows my mind, but is the idea of the robots or the AI kind of predicting what's going on in their human collaborators' heads. That's hard enough for a human. What does that even mean for a robot or an AI? Yeah. That's a great question. So, and you have to to pursue that in, in, in an academic fashion. It needs to be a well-defined problem. And the like the human cognitive state that matters in a particular setting, and, and you know, particular setting A is very different than the state that matters in a different mm-hmm. setting. And so sometimes when I give talks, like sometimes the question afterwards is, is there a unifying, you know, model or approach to being able to infer human cognitive state. And I've always just been like, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think so, but we'd have to maybe ask the cognitive scientists and neuroscientists. Yeah. But like for me, that the fact that there isn't, you know, one well-defined set of states that you're really after that you're aiming to infer is actually one of like the key research questions. And I think it is one of the key research challenges, which is like we as humans, we want to be able to shape the machine learning model or the AI's model of our world or of us, much like a human brings like different considerations or a different mental model of interacting with another human or doing one task versus another task. Mm-hmm. So a key sort of direction of our research is, first of all, recognizing that you will never succeed at that with an unsupervised learning approach. There's, I mean, you might get super, super lucky and the latent states you infer happen to correspond to the human's mental model of, you know, and, and you know, what's, what's particularly important in that particular context, but practically that's not going to happen. And we theoretically, <laughs> you know, it's a challenge. So the question is, what inputs can you elicit from a person that's easy for a person to provide that can help lock in or sort of shape the latent space or improve the efficiency of inference for the system to learn those the latent states or their dynamics of the human that that's interacting with it and like providing labels like a supervised approach will work but then where did those labels come from and how practical is it in every setting to be able to provide labels of of relevant human cognitive state i mean it's just like an unreasonable request mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are inputs that are easy for people to provide. Like maybe it's helpful to ground it in a in a concrete example. So say I have the most simple system I'm trying to you know, develop my own mental model of, and it's just a subway. So it just goes to the end of the line, it turns around and it comes back. I'm originally from New Jersey. So in New York, the subway goes uptown and downtown. And that's the mental model I hold as a as someone from New Jersey. But in Boston, the subway becomes exactly the same way. It goes to the end of the line, it turns around and it comes back. But we say the subway goes inbound and outbound. And the switching point is some arbitrary like stop in the center, which is weird. Mm-hmm. So like you're going inbound as long as you're going to Park Street. And as soon as you pass through Park Street, you're going outbound. Mm-hmm. And then when it turns around and comes back, you're going inbound again until you pass through Park Street. Okay. And then you're going outbound. So it's a it's like my mental model of the subway 
in New York and Boston, it's a two state switching model, but it's, but my mental model is different depending on where I'm from. And so we employ like non-parametric Bayesian techniques to try to infer latent state of, you know, some black box system, say like a human, but what are the odds you're going to learn an inbound outbound switching model for Boston? But here's the thing, like, you know, maybe I don't want to label for you inbound outbound and then New York is uptown downtown. But if I can just tell you the, the change point, the switch point. So in New York, the switch point of my mental model at Subway is that it switches at the end of the line. And in Boston, it switches at Park Street. That's enough to sort of lock in. And now we're going to hold the same mental model of how to talk about the behavior of that subway. Looking for these ways in which it's very easy for a person to provide high-level input in, into a machine learning model and then enabling the machine learning model to use those inputs within its computational framework is uh, really, really exciting to me. Are the inputs that you're talking about, and in particular in this case of the subway, is this an interaction time input or is this a training input? So the the particular work that I'm talking about there, that's done at training time. Okay. So the idea is you have your time series data, mm-hmm. but rather than work with it in an unsupervised fashion, maybe you have some labels, but it's not fully labeled. And then you take this sort of high level input from the person in the form of partial policies or partial dynamics. And then what we do is we formulate those as constraints on on a variational inference process. But in that work, it's still done at training time. And I think your question is really exciting because, okay, so, you know, or even you have a trained model and now you're taking new tasks to do together, Mm -hmm. new environment, or how it is you, first of all, identify the differences between how you want the system to behave in the new environment or the model it holds and be able to adapt it is online is a really exciting research direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think where the question was coming from was in the context of training it, and you know me trying to construct you know what this train model might look like it almost sounded like a feature engineering task that you know subject matter expert might apply to map you know some raw data of whatever the data is we're looking at about these trains to you know their mental model of the world in order to get the model to to kind of attach to that in a training process to use loose terminology if you're kind of moving away from some center, your feature might be the distance from that center point or the distance from your endpoint or something like that. I was curious whether the way that you were building that knowledge into the system was similar to feature engineering or was it a different process altogether? That's interesting. So you're highlighting that like the person's role can be in identifying or synthesizing the features that are meaningful to you know, their understanding of the functioning of the system. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a role there and also uh, support, you know, obviously support there in enabling the proper elicitation of, of those features. The particular work that I'm referring to, it's not in the feature engineering space. So we employ like a Bayesian graphical model, a factored model with particular assumptions made on, on the structure of the model to be able to support efficient inference. So you have that observable states about the world, like there's things I can see about the subway, right? Mm-hmm. I can see its movement. There's actions that are taken that are observable, but then there's like, there's, there's something in the latent space yeah. <laughs> that clearly impacts, you know, the behavior, the observable behavior of the system as I want to be able to predict it and describe it. And I think what's interesting is either of those two state switching models can be informative, right? Especially if you want to 
if you want to predict the behavior of the system, you just kind of need a two-state switching model and you'll be able to predict the behavior of the system. The question of which one of those, sometimes it can help in predictive power of your model, but it's critically important for being able to uh, support a person in inspecting and understanding and doing their own projection of the behavior of this learned model in a, in a different context. In the approach, it's really a flat, we assume a flat, discrete, latent state space. The feature engineering question is, is equally important. I worked for a while on my pilot's license, which, which was really fun. And then I was a grad student and I ran out of money before I could solo. Which <laughs> I thought I had it all planned out, but you never fly for an hour. You always fly for an hour and 15 minutes and it didn't uh-huh. end up working out. <laughs> and the irony is now that I'm in the Aero Astro department, like, I think there's like actually a, like a benefit, like a professional education benefit where I could do flying lessons and now I don't have time and I have young kids. So, <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, for my days of learning how to fly, like it's just like much like a like a poor machine learning model. It's like a lot of input and you know, like the spurious correlations. Like you're like, oh, maybe I should do this when I see that over there. And it's like the role of the instructor to be like, uh-huh. here's what you attend to. These three features mean this. Like, put your fingers up. You know, do you see the horizon above or before four fingers? Now you know if you're flying straight and level. And you know, like that mm. that role of guiding the meaningful, the meaningful use of you know the features that the the system could attend to is enormously valuable. Without a causal model, it can be challenging to ensure you're learning a model that'll produce the behavior that you hope it'll produce in a um, in a novel environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is this subway example? Is this a kind of a toy example for illustration, or was there an actual problem that you were solving? An actual data set? What exactly is that problem? Yeah, the subway example was the very most simple synthetic domain in the paper okay. <laughs> to like illustrate the idea. We applied it to be able to, in this larger goal of being able to observe a human and develop a predictive model of their behavior, like a person holds certain priorities or preferences and how they want to do their work. And this is something like that practically a challenge for us in deploying robots in industrial environments. So on an assembly line, you know, someone might say, oh, there's standard work. There's like a standard way of building this car. There's a standard way of building this plane. And I believe that till I went in and watched how people build things. But there's actually like a whole lot of variation in how the plane is assembled or how the car is assembled. And, you know, different people for different reasons, different biomechanical models will have different ways of performing the work. And in, in something like an automotive, an automotive factory, a collaborator once told me that half a second of efficiency could like make or break the business case for introducing a new technology. So once you're looking at a robot to support a person and being like half a second faster, mm-hmm. like small changes in the ordering of how they install, you know, something on the dashboard of a car or their motions, being able to predict where they'll be in a fine grained way for the robot to assist, that'll make or break the success of that system in in, in doing that. So being able to quickly kind of lock in and model an individual person's priorities or preferences for, for, for performing a task improves the predictive power of that model. And But the key is to be able to do it with relatively little data. So the concrete use case is a person does their assembly task in a factory and you can collect data of how they how they do their work. And when the robot comes in, you want to be able to model like their intent, like where they're going to reach next on the table or where they're going to walk next in in the cell environment. 
And different people have different, again, priorities and preferences. Workload or sort of fatigue level can impact, you know, the, your, you know, your model of your, your predictions for the person. Mm-hmm. But rather than hand specifying a threshold based on, you know, some, some measures, it would, it's, it's better to be able to learn that <laughs> okay. and tune that threshold based on you know, the value it gives you in order, in order to predict where the person will be in space and time after some number of hours. So that's the, those are the, those are more concrete use cases of inferring these latent states and their dynamic and especially their dynamics. Got it. Got it. In the case of the shop floor and the, the preferences, it kind of going back to that earlier question I asked about runtime versus training time, you know, training time, you've kind of built in the capability to identify this, but the identification is happening at runtime. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is, this is fun. Okay. So like, what do you need for a robot to be able to collaborate with a person online? You needed to have a model of human behavior, which had, and it's maintaining a belief right over the person's, you know, latent states and a belief over, you know, what they're going to do next. And then you need a task model. And maybe you're lucky enough to have, you know, a clearly specified task model, but even then you have a partially observable model that the robot is reasoning about in order to be able to collaborate with the human partner. So that gives you as a POMDP. Um, and then you want to be able to solve that POMDP online. And that and what does it mean to solve it online? It means to give the robot the ability to choose its actions, both its like physical actions or in some cases even communicative actions, mm-hmm. to be able to reason on the un- uncertainty of what the person will do, but also to be able to reduce uncertainty based on its own actions. And just to, to quickly interject, POMDP is partially observable Markov decision process. That's it. Yep. Yep. And going back to the beginning of your explanation, do you have one partially observable model? Like you have this task model that is, which there's some noise of how the human might perform that task, or do you have two distinct models, one about the human? And well, it sounds like one is the human's cognitive state, which you're using to influence the, the task model. Yes. Yeah. So the the human's cognitive state is not directly observable. Therefore, the model of your human is partially observable. Okay. Like you can see physically what they're doing, but there's some elements about what they're doing that you can't directly observe. Because of that, you know, the robot, you know, is aiming to reason about a part, you know, about how it should be behave or act or what actions it should take considering this partially observable model of human behavior. The task model in some of our works, we assume it's fully known and fully observable. Mm-hmm. But just as it's really important to lower the barrier to, to quickly and easily learning a human model to work with a person, it's really important in many contexts to lower the barrier of enabling like a shop floor or a line worker or a domain expert to teach a robot a task without an applications engineer as the intermediary or in like the, in, in our lab <laughs> without, you know, your AI researcher as the intermediary. Mm-hmm. And when you aim to do that, you're no longer directly specifying the task. And it's often advantageous for the robot to maintain a belief over the true task specification as well. So it may not definitively know, you know, the, the specification for how to perform the task, but to hedge against its uncertainty, maybe in some particular context, it really needs to be very, very conservative. It's a safety critical context. In other contexts, it might have more flexibility 
mm-hmm. without there being a major consequence. But that's another form of partial observability that might that would go into a POMDP model that includes both an agent model and a task model. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sounds like yeah, I'm thinking of yeah, I've come into contact with well, not physically, but there are like these co-robots or cobots that are in use. I think there's a Baxter robot. Like there are models for humans interacting with robots, but I imagine they're fairly brittle when the human does something kind of outside of the script. Maybe the robot just waits for the human to get back in the right position or something like that to continue the script. And what I'm hearing is this is a direction for building robots or robot AIs that can more gracefully interact with humans? Is that the, the, the big picture idea? Yeah, that is the big picture idea. Like the big picture idea is to figure out how you can develop and field robots that don't require a human to be a robot to work with it. So, cause that's, a, that, <laughs> that often doesn't work very well, but you know, <laughs> there are actually many of the applications out there today. I mean, humans are very, very adaptable, but it comes at a cost. Yeah. So cost in many different dimensions. So, you know, there could be one angle where you look at how you develop and deploy intelligent robots to take over or supplant elements of what's being done by a human today. There is uh, an alternate approach where take what could easily be done physically by a robot today but then recognize it's it's little pieces of existing manual work that can be done by a robot. And now you have this integration challenge and then developing AI to help ease that, th- those integration challenges. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those integration challenges occur because humans are the ultimate uncontrollable entity. <laughs> Being able to ad- adapt or re- reason explicitly over the uncertainty and what a human will do becomes really important. And a key part of doing that is being able to, for the robot, specify like what are the true constraints that underlie the task that needs to be done and what's acceptable for working with the person. And then if you have a predictive model of what the person will do, that's all the better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because then you can, you know, plan over a time horizon, whether it be less than a second or tens of seconds, and and the interaction can be a little a little more fluid. The fit, like the Baxter, the Baxter is an example of uh, one of these collaborative robots that are mm-hmm. really game changing because they're safe enough to be right alongside a person. You don't need a cage. You don't need to remove them physically from the same space as people. Mm-hmm. And there's, we've used the universal robot in some of our deployments. We really enjoy the Franca, Emika robot, but many of the installations of these robots are still working independently of people in, in production environments. They're not working interdependently. And because of that, they're limited in in the value they can provide or the places they can be easily deployed. And so a key motivation of our work is enabling that interdependence, but rather than forcing the person (laughs) to like adhere to the fixed, you know, robot motion or robot schedule, allowing the robot to accommodate the natural flexibility or uncertainty that a person brings. Mm -hmm. And now the scenario that we've talked about thus far kind of creates this picture of a, a human with their kind of partner robot working on some tasks together, to what extent do you envision it extending to teams of, you know, one robot embedded within a team of humans or a, a one human with embedded within a team of robots or, you know, a, a more diverse mixture of humans and, and robots kind of working together on on some kind of tasks? Yeah, the, the work that I've been describing uh, so far around the the techniques for 
the non-parametric Bayesian techniques for inferring latent state and their dynamics. That is the PhD work of Weblav Anholker, who is currently an assistant professor at Rice, uh, Rice University. Actually, even though you know, many of those studies end up being, you know, one-to-one, one person, one robot. The motivation for a lot of our work is the recognition that a lot of our work is done in teams, and we do need to know more than just sort of cognitive state or mental state of, you know, one, one partner in order to succeed. So then that raises really interesting questions about, like, what is a team cognitive state? <laughs> mm-hmm. And how do you model that? And how can the techniques developed for... Uh, modeling like one black box agent, like a person, extend to modeling like this team concept. And uh, then again, so there's the prior work on team performance and and team coordination and communication, you know, those settings, maybe other than the pilot, co-pilot, you know, narrow scenario, those are all team settings involving more than two, two people. And there is this notion that team cognitive state is, is something different. And a lot of thinking and study about like what's encompassed in a team cognitive state. And I have a really exciting collaboration with Harvard Medical School looking at their operating room and like cardiac surgeries and the very complex dynamics involved in that. The the researchers there, they have this like super futuristic, you know, surgical simulation environment that they train the residents in and grants from NASA to study, you know, human teamwork and failures and human teamwork from a human factors perspective. And we're in discussion currently. Uh, and Vebaf Unholker in, in particular has a, a, a really exciting recent working paper out of his new lab. Again, these, these synthetic scenarios, but in extending these techniques to, to model some aspects of team cognitive state, flow, workflow disruptions, sort of miscommunication or signals among a team that that have adverse outcomes for a team's performance. And again, you have this really interesting question of training time versus online and what what can be predicted with batch versus online and with what fidelity and how does that flow into actually training a new surgeon to identify the team factors that affect performance? Is it done like an after action review? Or is there a way to bring these techniques actually online in an operating room and show some aspects of like current coding or rating of of the team state that can help potentially spur sort of a repair action online that might be useful? It's a a great question and work that is newer and, and early underway. Got it. Got it. Yeah. It sounds like there are elements of that that are kind of fundamental psychology research, like, you know, what is team cognition separate from the individual, the cognition of the individuals on the team? And what would a representation of that, you know, even start to look like? Yeah, yeah. The work on on that is, so the frameworks that exist for it are not computational framework. Mm currently. But one of the great joys, you know, I think from the work in our lab is talking with researchers in cognitive psychology and also cognitive science. Sometimes those works really have like the sort of the basis for that sort of feature, that that feature identification problem that that you raised. We've had success in, for example, taking dialogue acts related to to shared understanding um, developed in the behavioral psychology and cognitive science literature and use that to develop an inference system to be able to infer a team's state of under, understanding of like a common plan that they're they're discussing. 
there is a lot of opportunity to leverage the decades of research and insight developed in these other fields uh, and work together to develop computational models that can advance the automated capability of systems to um, to shore up you know weaknesses that that human teams sort of naturally have in performing these challenging tasks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've also done some work on in the domain of cross training between humans and and robots. When I hear that, I think a little bit of like imitation learning, but I think your approach is, is you know, in a fairly, in a different direction than that. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Yes. Yeah. So my lab explored this idea of cross-training or team training applied to human robot teams. And this goes back to the very start of the lab. And the researcher that, that did this research was my was a master student in my lab at the time, Stephanos Nicolaitis, and he's now an assistant professor at USC. And the motivations of that work was if if you looked, you know, then at, at techniques from the literature and learning from demonstration, it would be like a person showing a task to a robot or walking a robot, you know, through through the, the steps of the task. But if your goal was interdependent action between a person and a robot, like, how do you demonstrate that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, you'd be like, okay, robot, you do this. Okay, now I'm going to do this. Okay, and then what you're going to do is do that. And then I'm going to do that. It becomes kind of awkward to think through. When you uh, look at, again, the teaming literature, we have many well-honed techniques, like tried and true techniques for training humans to work interdependently in very challenging tasks. And the it's not always possible, but the gold standard is this thing called cross-training. So I do my part of the task and you do your part of the task and we try it out together, but then we switch roles. Then like I do your part of the task and you do my part of the task. And we did that for a little while. And then we switch roles again. Mm. And it turns out from a perspective of optimizing human learning for human humans learning how to work in teams, this works better than just about anything else. You can only really do it with small homogeneous teams. Like a nurse really can't take a surgeon's role. But when you have kind of small homogeneous teams, like this is the this is the way to train your team. Well, I imagine part of the rationale is that you kind of develop empathy and understanding of the other role. And it helps you, like we talked about before, kind of subtly adapt the way you do your thing. Yes, yes, yes. To the needs of the partner. Exactly, exactly. Like when I do your job, I suddenly realize like, you know, the challenges of <laughs> you doing your job when I, you know, and then you come back and you adjust the way you do things for the benefit of the team. Exactly. One of our goals early on was to think about, well, how can you optimize human robot team performance in, in following this type of learning curve? And so the first, you know, the, the, the first try at this was to say, well, what if, what if a human just gives the robot inputs the way, you know, the way a human would experience inputs when working with another person through cross-training? So in, this, in that paradigm, first the human did their role and the robot did its role, but then the human took the robot's role in a simulation environment and like pretended to be the robot. And then the robot, you know, did, you know, something that the human would do. <laughs> and there, the ability to improve the quality of the human's mental model of the robot was substantial. We were able to show that in experimentation, but there was also some evidence that the inputs the person was giving in this reinforce, this modified reinforcing model, re- reinforcement model were of higher quality than you would get through you know, standard approaches to reinforcement learning with just positive and negative feedback or reward. Hmm. And that's because if a robot does something and you say like good robot, like there's uh, there's questions as to what you mean by good robot. Was it 
good robot for the thing the robot just did? Or is it good robot for the thing that you think the robot is about to do next? Whereas when you take the equivalent of those inputs from the person actually doing the robot's job, that's more like a direct demonstration of the person for the robot. Was this project implemented in simulation or is there a a physical implementation of this? Yeah. So the cross-training was implemented in simulation. So the person and robot kind of played together in this game environment and the robot, you know, uh, in simulation showed the movements it would make, but they weren't physically working together. It was in a in a 2D simulation environment. Mm -hmm. And then we had the person walk over to the lab to the physical robot and do the task with the physical robot after training under different paradigms. And when the person and robot trained via cross-training and simulation, there were both objective and subjective measures benefits to the physical interaction between the person and the robot. So that leads to an exciting direction where you can imagine you know, a person and robot or a person teaching a robot and then learning to collaborate with a robot entirely in simulation off the assembly line without money flying by. And then you just walk out onto the assembly line and like, you're good to go. You've built your mental model of how to work with this robot and it's learned its model of yeah. how you'll behave and when working with it. Nice. What are some of the things you're most excited about looking forward? So the, th- that early work in the lab in cross-training, we still have the goal of optimizing a human and robot's ability to co-learn how to work together. That early work in cross-training was a part of the reason we pursued it in that particular way was because, like, what does it mean to optimize a human's learning of how to work with a learning robot? Like, I didn't know. But I knew that via certain structured interactions, a human should learn better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, so we implemented cross-training and were able to show this, you know, really strong benefit. Much of our work since has been looking at trying to more directly support and optimize the human's learning via the approach I mentioned earlier about enabling a person to guide a machine learning's model ability to align its learned model with the human mental model. How can we learn a machine learning model that a latent model that is well aligned with the human mental model directly, not indirectly via exercising certain forms of interaction? The uh, question you raised about how you do this at runtime is really exciting and really interesting. On the physical side, I have a group in the lab focused on this because if you say you're on an automotive line, which we were, and you want to gather your your model of a person doing the task so that you can introduce the robot, you have a chicken and an egg problem because when you collect your data of the person doing the task on their own, and then you introduce the robot, suddenly the person does their task entirely differently because the robot is there. It's like out of distribution. So then we're like, okay, so we had these real associates come through and then we're like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna be the robot. Here, look, I'm moving like a robot. You do your task like you would with me as the robot supporting you. And then you try to get your data that way and learn the model. And then you introduce the actual robot and then the person does it differently again. Mm-hmm. And so the ability of a system to uh, be able to follow or even guide that learning process of a person to work with the robot becomes very important, very practically important <laughs> to successful deployment of the system. Yeah. And then we have a line of research also looking at deep models, neural models, following a similar line of research. Like what are the inputs a person can give to shape that latent space so that it better aligns with a human held mental model that's useful for some specific task? 
So moving from so the Bayesian graphical model to deep models and, and, and enabling that same capability there, but all towards making these systems much more easily shapeable and adaptable to the needs of someone who's not a machine learning expert. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, Julie, thanks so much for joining us and sharing a bit about what you're up to. Very cool stuff. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.